And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to, like, 1910. Today is Friday. Yes, indeed, it is Friday. Thank you, Greta, you little climate alarmist munchkin, for that introduction. Today, episode 83 of Climate Change Roundtable. I'm your host, Anthony Watt, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate at the Heartland Institute. The topic today is a new film that's going to be coming up on Sunday, and it challenges the climate orthodoxy. Newsmax will soon air a primetime documentary titled A Climate Conversation. Now, this is produced with the help of the Heartland Institute. It's scheduled for this coming Sunday, October 15th at 8 p.m. Central Time. The documentary cuts through all the alarmist rhetoric and propaganda to address straightforward scientific questions and provide answers. We're going to review the film with the producers, David O'Rourke and Walter Johnson, plus narrator of the film, Kim Monson, who runs a radio program in Colorado. We also have our regular panel with us today, Dr. Sterling Burnett, Director of Heartland's Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy, and Linnea Lucan, Research Fellow at the Heartland Institute. Welcome, guys. As always, glad to be here. Yep, good to see you all again. So we have, of course, gonna, we're going to start off with the crazy climate news of the week. That's our usual feature and then we'll bring our guest about the film on and then review the film. But let's take a look at some of the crazy climate news this week. First of all, from Climate Power, a press release got sent out. They're all bent out of shape. Exxon deepens investment in oil, reversing climate promises. Oh, no. You think maybe Exxon might have realized finally that, you know, these climate promises aren't going to do anything useful for them as a company? Seems to be. What do you think, it guys? Well, it's such a misleading press release, and it shows that nothing Exxon does, not a single thing Exxon will ever do other than shutting down or <laughs> saying we're not an oil company any longer and ceasing all oil operations will ever satisfy the environmentalists. Because what this is about is they're buying a large uh, um, oil company, not a not a, a multi-shale uh, drilling company. platform, but a shale drilling company, right? But their very first release about the shale drilling company is how they are going to use it to reduce emissions by meeting, I think it's what, Continental Energies. I'm not sure. It might, might not be Continental. I forget who it is. Um, meeting their their net zero goals. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're taking this company over so they can meet net zero goals. And that's not enough for climate power. That's, a, that's an investment in big oil. Yeah, well, you know, like you say, you, nothing you, they could do would ever be enough. Yeah, no, you can't. Right. You can't make terrorists happy because ultimately, what they want to do is is commit yeah, terrorism. Right. You can't make environmentalists happy by paying them off. Right, and, and 
you know, I, I've mentioned this quite a few times. Um, Exxon is, you know, they're in court right now with California yeah. over their responsibility in the client, the alleged climate crisis. Um, and this kind of thing that they put out does not help their case. I don't understand how, as a company, you can go around talking about how indeed your product is leading to the destruction of the planet. And then you can turn around in court and say, well, actually, we we can't, you know, we shouldn't be brought to court for this. I, it, it's it's a lose-lose situation for everyone. Yeah, it's a real clusterfuck. It's well, I had a, a, a friend in the uh, in the movement. I have a friend in the movement, but uh, he used to say um, it's like the person who says, uh, yeah, I beat my wife, but I'm doing it less now than I used to. And pretty soon I'll be doing it even less. <laughs> you don't win with that. It's not like, oh, well, if you're if you're cutting down. Okay, so in the, in response to this, the New York Times puts up what could be the headline of the year: "Fossil fuels aren't going anywhere." Can you can you imagine the number of heads that exploded when the New York Times put this thing up? Wow! I mean, but they're being pragmatic about it. The bottom line is is that you know if these oil companies just decided one day, you know climate environment on the right, we're just going to shut everything off. The world would grind to a halt. Things would blow up. Things would stop. It would just be a mess. And so, yes, fossil fuels aren't going anywhere. That's the reality. And you know where they get that story from? The Biden, the net zero Biden administration, whose EIA issued a report this, uh, this week or last week, quietly, once again, no public... No big publicity campaign saying, oh, look at our new report. Uh, what it says is, guess what? CO2 emissions are going to continue to rise through 2050. Uh, fossil fuel use will continue to rise through 2050. It'll be a major part of our uh, our uh, energy use here in the U.S. and globally. Um, that That's true even if nuclear rises and other sources rise. Why? Population growth, economic growth, and there's all sorts of things you can't do without fossil fuels, like, say, steel production or concrete. So the Biden administration, who talks, you know, at a one side of its face saying, we got to phase these out, got to get rid of them, got to go net zero. On the other side, you know, maybe there's some honest brokers somewhere in the bowels of the bureaucracy saying, well, not so much. You know, uh, it's, it's not really possible. Yeah. Okay. Next one. MSN. Oh, no, not this one. Well, we can go with this one now. We'll do the MSN one later. Okay. So this Greta is the second most annoying climate alarmist out there. The king of annoying climate alarmism is, of course, Dr. Michael Mann. And yes, he says, empirical peer-reviewed support for the conclusion that climate deniers in general are truly awful human beings. The guy probably doesn't own a single mirror in his house, and it's not because some people claim he's a vampire. <laughs> well, you know, I, I really, frankly, I wish that everyone would just kind of stop um, addressing him in general. I think that if everyone just ignored him, he would become irrelevant, uh, especially if he loses particular court cases. Um, 
it's uh i don't know he's just he's an odious person uh i i his conduct online is very uh, unpleasant so i don't really like to <laughs> deal with him in general yeah, I was, the, you know i know he's it, this is a joke i know it's he's he's being satirical here uh but he's like well how do you define a a, a, a truly awful human being Where's the objective definition of that? I, I've I've looked in my Webster's dictionary. I don't I don't find it. Um, and so, how can peer review judge whether a climate denier fits that into that category? Of course, he's making all this up. Uh, he's he's just being the 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 normal horse's ass that he always is. Yeah. Anyway, so here's the scuttlebutt. After a decade of dodging, after a decade of dodging, Michael Mann is finally having to come into court. Yes, the D.C. District Court is finally calling him in next Monday. He has to show up in person in the Mann versus Stein case for a pretrial hearing. The judge says, you have to show up. And of course, Dr. Michael Mann doesn't like to show up for anybody because he's too important for such things, right? So he's going to have to show up and be in front of the judge. Interestingly enough, looking through the documents on the court case the other day, it's noted that the court is recognizing that Dr. Mann is having trouble proving damages. Ooh. Anyway, so the pretrial motion is Monday, and then on October 30th, a three-week-long trial starts in the Mann versus Stein case where, you know, um, he's taken umbrage to the quote about, you know, should be in state Penn versus Penn State, you know, which is an old saying that precedes Mann. Anyway. Bottom line is, it looks like he's about to get his comeuppance in America because he's already gotten his comeuppance in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Th not that he, not that he paid off like he's supposed to. Yeah, um, that's a, you know, you know the that's, that's a the true definition of a terrible person is one who doesn't pay a man who's dying. Doctor Tim Ball went through years of being harassed by Doctor Michael Mann, and then when Doctor Ball won his court case, Mann refused to pay up. Yeah, yeah I was about to say, not just refuse to pay, but refuse to pay something the court ordered him to pay. We'll see what yeah. happens in the U.S. I don't think he can get away with it here. He's not under no, the Canadian jurisdiction. So. If he loses yeah. this case, there will be fees and fines and, and things attached. The, yeah. the sad thing is um, the timing of this uh, is, is, you know, Stein himself is not in good health. So uh, we'll see how that works out. Right. Okay. So our final story is from MSN about Middle Earth, Middle America will soon be too hot to live in, scientists predict. This is from a PNAS study that was published this past week that basically says it's going to be too hot and humid for people to exist. But what about the people, Jim Lakely pointed out, what about the people that live in the South? Why aren't they dead already? Science. Uh, Houston should be de depopulated. Houston yeah. should be depopulated under this, uh, under this theory, as well as probably most of Louisiana. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Actually unlivable. And yet people are still doing construction jobs outside and stuff during days that are into the um, wet bulb, dangerous wet bulb temperatures and stuff. But yeah, apparently anyway. it's all it's not all that hard to avoid uh, dying of heat when <laughs> when you are living somewhere that is very hot. Or adapting yeah. to it. I mean, look, there are, there are areas, large areas of Africa, and I'm not talking about desert regions where it's arid, 
I'm talking about, you know, the jungles, the Congo, uh, Chad, uh, that are that are rainforest, <laughs> that are hot and humid, extremely hot and humid all the time. And uh, yet people survive and thrive there, have for not just a few years because ah, they suddenly got air conditioning, but for millennia, as long as there have been people in Congo and Chad in these countries, uh, gee, yeah. these scientists are like, are you going to believe what we tell you? Or are you going to believe your lying eyes and, you know, and thousands of years of historical evidence? Yeah. Anyway, um, so let's take a look at the trailer for this movie that we've discussed, a climate conversation, and then we'll introduce our guest. Hello, I'm Kim Munson of The Kim Munson Show, where we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. In my political conversations, few can be as confusing and polarizing as the issue of climate change. Ask the average person what it is and how they feel about it, and you're bound to get a wide variety of answers. And this is supposed to be a topic that we all agree on, according to what we've been told by the powers that be. You've probably heard this statistic that 97% of scientists agree on climate change, specifically when it comes to human involvement in its creation. Well, then who wants to be on the wrong side of that equation, especially when it comes to a supposed unbiased scientific consensus? And why has it become political? Shouldn't we all be able to examine the scientific evidence and all draw the same conclusions regardless of what candidate you support in an election? I would say that the majority of us agree that we don't want a waste-filled planet that has become inhospitable to life as a result of our activity as human beings. We all desire clean air, fresh water, and fertile land that continues to flourish throughout the generations of our human existence. So as the planet changes, as we're able to record its fluctuations in climate, temperature, CO2 content, and so forth, what does it mean? Are the consequences of our actions bringing a coming planetary apocalypse? And if this is the case, what measures, however extreme, have to be taken to prevent this inevitable extinction? These are the questions I have, and I want answers if there are answers to be had. I want answers that are science-based and not subject to political interests. So that's what we intend to do. Today we're going to have an honest, simple, and short discussion on this broad topic we call climate change. Our discussions today will take us through a wide range of topics, including the history of Earth's temperature and CO2 content, a discussion for the cost for the United States to go carbon-free by 2050, the availability of materials to go carbon-free, and the implications of gaining access to those materials. Today, we're seeking the honest, unfiltered truth when it comes to the climate of our planet.
All right. That's the trailer for a climate conversation. And we have with us today the producers as well as uh, the host of the show. The producer, uh, main executive producer, Walt Johnson, is with us today, and co-producer David O'Rourke, and Kim Monson, the narrator. Welcome, guys. Thank you very much for showing up today. Good morning. Thank you. Yes, Walt, we don't have much audio from you, so we'll just kind of have to kind of muddle through. Um, the um, Thank you. Oh, it's better now. Okay, good, good. Anyway, um, so uh, what I want to do is just kind of start out the conversation by having um, one of you, and I'll let you guys pick, Walt, Kim, or Dave, who wants to kind of give us a quick overview of the history of this and, and how it got started and, and why it's here today. I think that's a Walt answer. Okay, go Walt. Thank you. Uh, I have a little trouble understanding you. Sorry. The the yeah. question, Walt, is w w the background. What what got you interested in doing this documentary, and uh, your interest in the topic, and how you move forward? Uh, as an earth scientist, I had a very strong disconnect with what I was hearing and what I knew. I had to do something. And so. It uh, looks like we've got some internet connectivity problems with Walt. Uh, Kim, can you step in there and fill in, please? I, I certainly can. I've known Walt and his wife, Ramey, for many, many years. And Walt's been a geophysicist for over 50 years. And it was on his heart. He just was more and more concerned about what he was hearing. And he, he, he realized that there's been great books that have been written regarding this particular topic, but he had it on his heart that he really wanted to have a movie done about this, a documentary. And he stepped up to the plate and took money out of his own retirement plan because he cares so much about his fellow man and uh, and wanting to get the truth out on this. And so that's that's kind of the backstory on that, Anthony. That's very cool. Thank you, Walt, for doing that. From what I've seen of the trailer and the film itself and preview, it looks very, very compelling and very well done. Um, where was this produced? Was this produced professionally in Hollywood or was it done in Colorado or somewhere else? <laughs> it was in Colorado. And we really have to say that, give hats off to Colton Moyer, who took on this uh, project and really created it. He worked with Walt. Uh, Walt gave him his vision. And Colton then put together this, this great film. He's the pro producer, director of the film. And it's, so it's Colorado-based. I'm in Colorado, Walt's in Colorado, and Colton's in Colorado. Very nice. A lot, like I say, it looked like it was done in Hollywood. It's very slick, very good presentation. Dave, um, what... Um... What kind of hoops did you have to jump through to get this thing produced? So there's a little bit of a disconnect. I'm not a producer on the film. I, I was asked several months ago to see if I could use my experience in distribution and advertising to help promote the film and take it global if we can and really put it into the middle of the of, of a conversation. There's been a, a, all the respect and, and gratitude for your program and others like it. The other side's kind of winning. The uh, 
you know, the alarmist side really gets most of the oxygen here. I didn't have much of anything to do with the production of the film. I was, uh, it was first shown to me several months ago, my partner and I, my partner has worked with Kim in her radio broadcast for a number of years. And we thought, this is not the product that we typically work with, but this is too important not to get on board. You know, I, I'm also a consumer and an American citizen and a, and a guy. And I hope to think a thoughtful person. And when I look at this and I saw this movie, I thought how badly needed it is to inject a little bit of common sense and sanity. And instead of aiming for a constituency that we already know is on one extreme or the other, why not find the middle of the target and talk of Americans, the ones who are going to have to pay the tax, by the way, to fund this net zero thing that we might be facing someday. So questions about the production and development of the film, those really are not for me. Well, well uh, go ahead, Sterling. No, you go ahead, Luna. Um, I was going to ask, you know, have you run across um, issues with uh, distribution or getting anyone to pick stuff up other than just uh, Newsmax in general? Have Have you run into problems? Because we know, you know, it's not always easy to get through that kind of barricade uh, that the mainstream narrative has on everything. Yeah, it's funny you say that because just the other day we ran into it with with X, with the you know formerly known as as Twitter, the artist formerly known as Twitter, and immediately um, you know my partner was like, "Let's solve this. It's a digital thing," and I was like, "No, they're out to get us," <laughs> because that's the climate that's been created here. You know the cancel culture and all of that, and and you can look at the trailer we just showed and you must realize that there's it's filled with dog whistles for people who are on the lookout for ulterior motives but it'd be a little vignette the answer to your question no we haven't had that and i hope we don't but we had an event in denver colorado we did a sneak preview and it ended up it filling the room to absolute capacity standing room plus didn't have enough chairs uh, and we knew that there were some people, we invited everybody, invited the entire press, anybody who wanted to come. And we did see that there was some groups that appeared to be in solidarity with each other and looked like they were there to, you know, maybe they had some eggs in their pockets, but they were gonna yell at the screen at some point. And they didn't. And when the film got its inevitable standing ovation, they politely applauded and sat, sat stayed seated. It was easy to see who was sort of wanted to be part of a proactive and positive conversation who did not i think the film is so beautifully crafted and so sincerely drawn and delivered that this might actually humble people on all sides of the conversation and bring about its intended goal which is to have adults talk about not only the costs but the benefits associated with what is possible to do there are things that are possible to do, and there are things that are not possible to do. We should be clear-eyed about what we're going to do and what those choices mean and what all the other externalities are, because the trillions that we spend on this solution must come from somewhere else. I I would like to talk about that for a moment, um, the, the event, because so we played a role. We did a press release. We got some testimonials from prominent scientists talking about it. But even so, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, going in, I know you charged an entrance fee for the event. Um, 
it was a, a work night. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly didn't have, uh, you know, it's like you cross your fingers, you say a prayer, <laughs> but I didn't have high hopes that, you know, you'd have much of an audience showing up. The people have to drive to the event. They have to park, they have to pay. You've got to be really dedicated, really want to learn to do this. And so in the aftermath, I was like, wow, you know, uh, I was encouraged uh, that, that, that there are more people than I thought uh, with open minds who wanted to learn. And, you know, I think you had some some state legislators and legislators, local officials show up. Uh, that was nice because uh, Colorado is not necessarily the most friendly place to uh, to uh, conservative points of view. Now it used to be sort of purple, but now it's pretty blue, uh, except in the hinterlands. So um, I, I don't think people realize just how um, I, I won't say pr profound, but how amazing, at least to me, it was that you got the turnout you did. And you got some of the coverage that you did. Yeah, truly well, a great Tim, effort. Kim can probably speak much more you know, usefully and profoundly to this subject than I can. But, but it's been my experience that when the American people are polled on issues like this, they're filled with common sense. It's when the politicians get the microphone that things start to really fall apart because there's an interest on their part in creating constituents that are opposed to other constituents. But I don't understand that. Sun shines on all of us. The earth is here as our home for why is it controversial to ask questions about the fundamental things? Is is carbon dioxide, which we cannot live without, and which feeds all plant life on earth and is the source of all energy ever produced. Is it a bad thing or a good thing? And and if it's bounded on either end, what is that range? And why don't we talk about that? Maybe more carbon dioxide would be good. Yeah. Maybe too little carbon dioxide would wipe us all out. But you I've, haven't heard wanna... that question in a movie until Walt asked it in this movie. So one of the things I want to do, and I don't know if we're going to be able to pull it off or not, because Walt, unfortunately, your internet connection is hit and miss, it comes and goes. But uh, one of the things that you sent us was a slide that talks about the history of carbon dioxide and warming on a geological time scale, the concentration of CO2 and temperature fluctuation. And as you can see in this, and this is from a peer reviewed paper, um, that carbon dioxide and temperature don't always correspond. Uh, Walt, do you have any commentary on that? Walt? Okay, yes, sir. Well, I'm having still trouble hearing you. Uh, okay, if you want to put up uh, chart number one, which is yours, which is the four billion year history of carbon dioxide and the temperature of the earth. Uh, and on that, on the far left is the four billion years ago, you see we had a lot of high temperatures, a lot of carbon dioxide, somewhere in the middle. Now, I lived all of these things. I've worked with the rocks all the way through here all my life. And in the middle, about 290 million years ago, you see where we had a drop in oxygen and CO2. We, we didn't drop, excuse me, we had a drop in temperature and CO2. And all the corals in the world disappeared. You did have an algae then, but it doesn't 
affect the impact of life. And then the second half of the chart, you see where we had a lot of temperature, uh, uh, warm temperatures and a lot of CO2 that was very much a flourishing part of life. That's when we had a lot of coal deposits. We had a lot of uh, oil was half, more, more than half of our oil came from that period. And, and then on the far right, you see what we're all so concerned about. Look at the little hook on the far right of that chart. And, and that's what we're worried about. This is nothing. I mean, in the total context of the world, that's nothing to see. And then if we look for the next chart, at figure number two is the last 450,000 years of life in this earth and it's taken from an arctic ice core antarctic excuse me ice core and you see on that the temperature and the co2 the temperature being in blue as we come out of the different ice ages you look at the bottom as we go up the temperature goes up before the co2 goes up that's because the carbon dioxide is coming out of the water much like if you took a soda out of a, a refrigerator and set it out on a table the carbon dioxide would come up so the temperature leads the, car, the carbon dioxide by about 60 to 100 years. And so then we go on to the next uh, step, and you'll see where man was the last, let's say, 4,500 years. You saw the Myonian civilization. And we had a chance to, to go on a tour and class with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, his specialty is right on that first part of human life. And the Myonians were, Minoans, excuse me, were, were building things before we even left the Ice Age. By the time they hit their peak civilization, you had, they had clay pipes to haul water from the mountain down to the cities. They had running water through the cities, things to take the sewage away. They were able to grow their crops and they controlled most of the economy of the world at that time. They had boats. And then the, the uh, Santorini came and eliminated three-fourths of the Minoans and uh, destroyed their navy. And, and then things changed. You had the Greek city-states. But you go all through that, and you get to the far right. There is us, and, and there's nothing, nothing to worry about. We're still probably a little bit cooler than the medieval warm period, which Dr. Mann had eliminated, by the way. Uh, and then we're, we're, the Romans were growing grapes in Scotland, even wine quality grapes in Scotland and England. And only recently have we gotten wine out of England. So th this is really nothing to be concerned about. Then we'll go to the next slide, which is the last, oh, 350 years. And on that slide, you will see the... Uh, the, temper the, car the temperature going up, again, about 100 years or maybe 150 CO2. And the CO2 is increasing. And, and the last chart I'd like to bring up, yeah, that one. The last chart I'd like to bring up is, is the temperature of Colorado the last 130 years. This is something that uh, Greg Wrightstone has been able to do is get in and take the, the weather stations just for Colorado and plot them from 1895 from when they started until this was 1922 and we had uh we we don't see any imminent thing about to happen uh, we're told we're going to have to replace all the buildings downtown from gas heating to electric heating in a certain period of time we're we're, we're spending a lot of weight we're wasting a lot of money that we really shouldn't be
So that's about the end of, of what I had on the temperatures. And, and for me, as a, uh, I, I had a different life than a lot of people. When I hit 19, 18, my parents told me something bad happened and you have to figure out a way to put yourself through school. And I wanted to go to college. So I got a job at the Forest Service and I was in the surveying department and I surveyed timber harvesting roads. I served, surveyed timber access roads uh, for, for fighting fires and recreational. I surveyed trails, a lot of different things. But in that time, I got to know a lot of people in the Forest Service. And when we hit a point uh, here lately that we hear the forest fires are running wild, I called my friends who had at that time retired and had been taught to change in the Forest Service. They no longer fight a fire at night. They no longer uh, uh, have the same kind of training you can get a degree in in landscape architect and become a forester well anyway that's about what i've had and i've having i'm having trouble hearing you I've, I've watched your show all the time and can hear it but i can't hear it today for some reason thanks okay thank you for that walt that was a good presentation now they obviously there's going to be technical aspects to this film that are going to be addressed like what we just saw but what about some of the more um political and socioeconomic aspects. Kim, can you tell us what other points we're going to be touching on in this film? Uh, definitely. Uh, uh, Ken Gregory with the Friends of Science uh, really does an extensive, has done extensive studies on what it would cost from an economic standpoint. And, uh, and Colton did a great job of taking all of that information and presenting just enough so that there was the credibility so that people could understand that, that Friends of Science, King Gregory really uh, looked at this issue, but not so much that uh, viewers' eyes would glaze over. So that is certainly addressed. And Walt decided to have Ken in the film because Ken is one of the few people that has actually taken a look and, and studied to see what would this really cost if we went to net zero or tried to get to that point. And, and the conclusion is it would decimate our, our economy. Uh, and so it was good to have him address that, Anthony. Well, maybe we should rename it to net bogus at this point. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, it, it, that's the problem with a lot of the climate alarmists and even the rational people on the side of the climate debate. They're not looking at the real numbers. They're not looking through this stuff to do all the calculations for the future. They just think, oh, well, we'll just do wind and solar, you know, and life will be happy and unicorns and clouds and all this other horse crap coming up in the future. But they're not looking at the real cost of changing our entire energy infrastructure. They think they can just magically wave a hand and it'll happen. And so that's what this film addresses. It addresses the folly of these kinds of ideas. Would that be an accurate statement? I, I would say so. And another th thing that people have not really addressed, and um, Ron Stein, I'm not sure that he said it in the film, but he said it in the, well, he alluded to it in the film. Um, but he talks about these rare earth minerals that have to be mined in open pit mines uh, so that we can have these uh, rare earths for batteries and such. And he said, he said, I would not, I'm paraphrasing, I would not own 
uh, an EV because of that, that particular issue. And then he said, you've heard the term blood diamonds. He said, these are blood minerals. And that kind of stopped me in my tra tracks, Anthony. Um, talking about the, you know, the, the net zero fantasy and, and, and Anthony was right. Look, people don't do the numbers. Mark Mills wrote about this a few years ago. Um, and he called it magical thinking. It's the idea that we can actually say how much energy is used in the, in the United States annually. Um, and we can say how much is anticipated to be needed and what it would, what it would, mean to try and get there using wind, solar, batteries, you know, solely, uh, you can calculate how many wind turbines, how much land, how much battery backup, how many factors. And he says, when you do that, when you look at the engineering, the hard numbers, it's an exercise in magical thinking to think we can get there from here. You nailed it, Sterling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sterling, we have a comment on the screen. Blood minerals is what you could call this. It really is. If I could add something to what Sterling said, I, I'm fascinated by a couple of things. There was an article recently that showed the amount of land that would be required for all the solar arrays, all the wind turbines, all the distribution network, all the industrial scale batteries. It would be the largest taking in the history of the eminent domain law in America by a magnitude, by an enormous magnitude, or by the Louisiana Purchase, virtually. Well, this, this is what... Humongous. This is, this is why the Biden administration, in part, wants 30 by 30. <laughs> they want to expand U.S. holdings uh, by, uh, you know, a third. And it's largely, I think, to satisfy green energy goals. So uh, it, it's crazy. And the interesting thing is, you know, like I said, Mark Mills did the engineering part of it. He, 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 and, uh, he, he cited uh, uh, Pelkey, Roger Pelkey Jr. and some others, and they looked at, um, okay, so what are the emissions drop, the global emissions drop? Because, you know, we're talking about the U.S. We, we, don't, we don't control uh, the rest of the world where the majority of the world's populations are. We're, we're a small part. And it turns out it's not going to, if you really believe, mind you, if you really believe human CO2 emissions are driving uh, a dangerous climate change, dangerous rise in temperatures, if you really believe that, what do we gain for basically shutting down industrial civilization in the United States? And it's nothing because of the growth in emissions elsewhere that events no evidence they are going to stop. Sometimes China says things like, oh, we're going to peak emissions. They don't say where they'll peak. Oh, we're going to start cutting as they sign off on the newest coal-fired power plant. It's, it's, um, you have to, you have to believe in fantasy. You have to, you have to put the blinders on and just say, I believe, I believe, uh, what, what, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Click, click your heels together and hope it works out. 
Uh, well, and it's worse than that, Sterling. Our government has been telling people that it's going to require uh, like less than 1% of the U.S. land area in order to achieve net zero. Uh, and it actually turns out that just for the wind turbines that we need is nine times greater than the Biden administration estimates uh, that they give out publicly. And it's it's even worse because actually the very studies that the Biden administration is referencing do not say that it's only going to take less than one percent of our land area. They're the ones that say actually it'll probably realistically it'll take you know much you know orders of magnitude more than that, um, and that's not even including all of the land that's needed for transmission lines, which is a huge part of the um, uh, eminent domain uh, argument that that's going to have to come up. And then ask yourself this: uh, What they're not going to do is clear Dallas, downtown Dallas, to put up these wind turbines. They're not going into inner city Chicago and saying, "Sorry, we're taking the tenements down to put up wind turbines." They're 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 going in in relatively undeveloped wild areas. Not all of them that are really suitable for wind power. Uh, wind doesn't blow equally everywhere. Sun doesn't shine equally everywhere. What about the wildlife? These people for decades have harangued the world about saving wildlife, protecting wildlife. The largest, the most important critical factor in the loss of wildlife is habitat loss. And they're going to destroy millions, hundreds of millions of acres of habitat and erect things that also kill wildlife uh, by the thousands or hundreds of thousands. To save the, they're going to kill the planet to save the planet. Now that makes no sense to me. Well, Sterling, I think the other thing that I've learned as we've really looked at this issue, and regarding the green agenda, the new green deal, it's about green, all right, but it's the green that's going into people's pockets. Right, right. So I'm going to ask a question that it's going to be obviously asked by all the people from the other side of the debate who are going to look at this film with a jaundiced eye, they're going to ask the question, how much Exxon Mobil money went into producing this film so that you can deny climate change? <laughs> uh, zero. Absolutely zero. Well, see, we keep saying that here at the Heartland Institute, but they don't seem to understand. They're projecting the, their whole viewpoint onto us, but we don't ever take money from fossil fuel companies. They have a hard time believing that people of character can have their own separate opinions. And that's the problem. They just Jim seem to think I... that we're all being driven by some agenda or being paid to be driven by an agenda. Jim Lakely and I were joking on Twitter the other day that maybe if they keep repeating that we're awash in oil money, that it might come true. <laughs> <laughs> it, might, yeah, just, it might indeed. Just like Dorothy uh, so, clicking her heels and someone rubbing the genie's lamp. Uh, right. So I want to move on to questions and answers. Uh, we have some some comments uh, and questions from commenters, and we'll address those. And we're going to run the trailer again for those of you that have joined us late so you can get a view of it and then tell you where you can see it again. So let's forget up the first question and see what we can, we can do there. Bill Peckney asks, is this a film that could go to the... <laughs> 
No, they would they would they would throw you out, would they not? A film that could go to the Sundance Film Festival. They would hang Robert Redford in effigy. <laughs> there well, are, that that there. might make it all worth it in itself, but uh, <laughs> that's another story. Yeah, there are would, there are many areas of distribution for this film, but the one that will matter is the viral one. It's the one that happens by itself. Right, but but uh, the video seemed to have been coming from my iPhone. Is that correct? We love technology on this podcast. <laughs> right. Now, I want to point out something. Walt is the producer of this film. And yet, if we were awash in oil money, don't you think he'd be able to buy a better internet connection? But no! <laughs> Good point. Good point. Well, Matthew. you know, and, and, and but he's right not, there. We're not in the pocket of big oil. All you right, know, let's bring up on, the next question. Back on the show. Will Newsmax carry the film as a video feed on their website? I don't know. Will they? You you will be able to stream the film on Newsmax TV after the premiere is over. You'll also be able to find it on YouTube, which is really super easy way to find it. You'll be able to stream it on Roku. Um, Ubiquity is the call, the watchword for our distribution effort. We want this thing in every school. We want this to be shown in the halls of Congress. We want this to start a conversation that needs to be had, that starts in the middle and goes out from there, not starts from the out and grinds the rest of us under the boot heel of economic and political interest. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the reaction of the left when they get the when when this thing comes up. John Z asked, what's the best thing people can do to organize to undermine the line narrative of the institutions that are undermining humanity? Anybody? Well, that's, I, that's the big question. <laughs> Make a film. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish I wish we had uh, you know the an easy uh, non-complex answer to that, but that's one of those things that uh, what is uh, uh, Mencken once said: for every complex problem, there's an answer that's uh, clear, easy, and wrong. Um, Whoa! What happened there? Hi, Walt. We can see hi. you on your camera there. Hi. Hello. That seems to be a better hi. connection than what you had before. Thank you. I don't know if I'm the visual is coming through the iPhone or the. Uh, it's the phone. It's Your the visual phone. Is, is an order of magnitude better than what you were getting before. I, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And the audio and is the, in synchronization. The, that so was such a... Keep, keep that position. Don't move the phone. You're perfect. Okay. Thank you. Anthony, that was uh, such a juicy question. Do you mind if I uh, throw out a suggestion to something that could happen? One of the stars of the film is Gregory Wrightstone, who's the executive director of the CO2 Coalition, and the author of, of a book, a bestseller called Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore does not want you to know. If you haven't picked up that book, it's fascinating. But one of the things that comes with that book is, a, I think, 60 or 62 question Q&A. So it's a how to answer challenging questions. So with Thanksgiving coming up and the inevitability that there'll be people at the dinner table, you know, you're your grumpy uncle or your radical college niece or whatever, wouldn't it be nice to be armed with a little thing that says, you know, oh yeah, well, here's a fax. Why don't maybe we can make decisions based on science and 
since this money that's going to be required to solve these problems came from objective reality, maybe we should apply some of that in making our decisions and having these conversations going forward. So let's see if we have another question available for us. Bob Johnson asks, has anyone looked at the heat island created by thousands of solar panels? Well, I don't think you probably addressed that in this film, but I will say that um, that's a real thing. Solar panels can get up to 150 degrees Fahrenheit in the midday sun in the summer. And when they do get to that temperature, their efficiency starts to drop. But yes, they create their own heat island. I have walked uh, in in rows of solar panels that have been set up like that. And really the heat is unbearable. And so, you know, what are we really doing here? We're heating up the atmosphere in order to get free electricity from the sun. Is that really solving climate change, AKA global warming? I don't think so. Maybe, oh, maybe that's what they meant in that initial story when they said that we were making the earth uninhabitable is by putting all the solar farms around, we will make it impossible to live anywhere near them. You know, you may have a point there. Uh, a lot of these solar panels are going out into desert areas and so forth, which are, you know, of course, going to be traditionally uninhabitable. And the interesting thing, you know, they're talking about the wet bulb temperature. One of the things that I do know about the solar panel technology, particularly in dusty areas like deserts, is that they have a water system along the tops of the solar panels to spray the solar panels down to get the dust off. So not only are they adding heat, they're adding humidity. Uh, and they're also taking water uh, from other, uh, from natural resources and from other uses uh, in areas that are, you know, it's not as if water is abundant in Death Valley or other places where these things might yeah. be popular. Right. So while we have a good, oh, here we go. We got one more. Christine Laura, last question. Uh, there are so many people I'd like to share this with. Where can I send people to view it or purchase an MP4 file to share? That's a video file that she's asking about. www.aclimateconversation.com. And uh, after the showing on Newsmax, it'll, you should be able to find it up there, or you could even order a DVD. Will it be available for free on that website to watch? To, yeah, absolutely. I, I was adamant when we went into this. I didn't want to scam people. So, okay. so there will be ways to see it. There'll be many ways to see it for free. Right now, uh, Newsmax gets the first shot at it. And that's only wonderful. Summer. Okay. So a climateconversation.com is where they should go to look for it. Right. Okay, cool. All right. Well, since we didn't have good video and audio from you at the beginning, is there any final thoughts you want to add to this before we show the trailer to everybody again? Uh, yes, uh, this has been something that's been working with me for quite a while. I'm very pleased to have had the very best people I could find, and they were the best people for it. They all got paid in advance, and they performed marvelously. Poor Colton probably put five times more work in than what he bargained for. But uh, I, I, it's turned out beautiful the way it is. It's non-confrontational. It's just pulling the data up and the science and, and looking at things and discussing it. And we had, you, you mentioned uh, Greg Wrightstone with the book, uh, Ronald Stein, he wrote the book, uh, Clean Energy Exploitation, the, the moral value of what we're doing. And then Ken Gregory had a very important part. 
he began to bring up the cost of it, which is 1.1 million for every adult in the U.S. Well, if you're a tax-paying adult, only half the adults pay taxes, so that's 2.2 million for you. And if you're married, that's 4.4. So we have to have some good discussions on the cost. Yeah, well, the cost is prohibitive, and that's what it boils down to. Net zero is impossible. All righty, so what I'm going to do is say our goodbyes now, and then we're going to run the trailer, and then we'll go to our outro. But uh, I want to thank uh, Dave and Kim and Walt and, of course, thank Sterling you. and Linnea for coming on the show and talking about this film. Really looking forward to seeing it airing on Newsmax, and I'm really looking forward to the reaction, and if any, the left has towards this, um, you know, they they may condemn it, they may ignore it. It's hard to say. But one thing I can say for sure is that the things that are presented in this film are factual and real. And I urge everyone to watch it one way or another. So again, thank you all for joining us. I want to say uh, I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for the Heartland Institute for Environment and Climate, wishing you all a good day and a great weekend. And now here's the trailer. Thank you. Hello, I'm Kim Munson of The Kim Munson Show, where we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. In my political conversations, few can be as confusing and polarizing as the issue of climate change. Ask the average person what it is and how they feel about it, and you're bound to get a wide variety of answers. And this is supposed to be a topic that we all agree on, according to what we've been told by the powers that be. You've probably heard the statistic that 97% of scientists agree on climate change, specifically when it comes to human involvement in its creation. Well, then who wants to be on the wrong side of that equation? especially when it comes to a supposed unbiased scientific consensus. And why has it become political? Shouldn't we all be able to examine the scientific evidence and all draw the same conclusions, regardless of what candidate you support in an election? I would say that the majority of us agree that we don't want a waste-filled planet that has become inhospitable to life as a result of our activity as human beings. We all desire clean air, fresh water, and fertile land that continues to flourish throughout the generations of our human existence. So as the planet changes, as we're able to record its fluctuations in climate, temperature, CO2 content, and so forth, what does it mean? Are the consequences of our actions bringing a coming planetary apocalypse? And if this is the case, what measures, however extreme, have to be taken to prevent this inevitable extinction? These are the questions I have, and I want answers if there are answers to be had. I want answers that are science-based and not subject to political interests. So that's what we intend to do. Today we're going to have an honest, simple, and short discussion on this broad topic we call climate change. 
Our discussions today will take us through a wide range of topics, including the history of Earth's temperature and CO2 content, a discussion for the cost for the United States to go carbon-free by 2050, the availability of materials to go carbon-free, and the implications of gaining access to those materials. Today, we're seeking the honest, unfiltered truth when it comes to the climate of our planet. How dare you?